Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi, and today on The Culture, we've got a special bonus summer episode talking about the best films of 2021. It was a great year for movies, and there's plenty of stuff to catch up on if you didn't have the time to hit the cinema as much as you would have liked. To talk about the best movies of the year, I'm extremely excited to introduce someone who's not only my friend, he's one of Australia's best film critics. He's he's the co-host of the Total Reboot podcast, Netflix's The Big Film Buffet, and one of my favourite podcasts of all time, ABC's Finding Drago and the sequel Finding Desperado. It's the one and only Alexi Toliopoulos. Thank you for joining the culture, my friend. Well, Oz, I actually must say the thanks in this case belongs to me. Thank you for having <laughs> me on the podcast. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, hey, Alexi, how good are movies? I had a religious experience last night watching a movie and I I feel completely reinvigorated to say I freaking adore movies. I simply love cinema so very much and I feel electric right now thinking about movies. So I got to say they're pretty dang good. I'm in a similar mood. I have been back to the cinema many, many Mm -hmm. times since things started to open up again and each moment has been like a religious experience for me. It, yeah. And this year, I mean, it's been a good year for movies, man. There's been a lot of great stuff. It really has. I think we're in a weird spot where, you know, last year there was very, very little cinema mm. going. So, you know, we saw delays on huge movies, delays on basically movies all over the spectrum of hugeness to smallness. (laughs) And so I think that we're in a weird spot this year where we've got like a bit of a glut coming to the end of the year where we're getting like the big releases finally coming out and all of the prestige... Uh, high-end drama and high-end indies are all coming out at the same time. So right now it feels like we are in one of the great new periods of films coming out. But it is due to like a lot of a delay and then some really creative things that got made in the last couple of years as well. And we're going to talk about quite a few of those. Uh, There are a couple of movies that are actually not on my list of best movies of 2021, (sighs) but... They were still some of the best experiences I've had in a cinema in a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's these two big, big movies that were delayed from last year, Denis Villeneuve's Dune and Kari Joji Fukunaga's James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Mm. Like I said, not the best movies I've seen this year, but I enjoyed both of them enormously. It was amazing to sit in the IMAX and just have the visuals, the sound wash all over me. Yeah. Absolutely. To just be truly immersed in a humongous movie like that, where you can almost hear the speakers rattle and stuff. That was something that is very hard to recreate in the home cinema experience. I think in the past two years when we've been, you know, kept away from the cinema, I think a lot of my attitudes towards movie going myself has changed. Like, Mm. you know, I will always go to the cinema. It's where I feel more at home than in my own home. But uh, it's much darker. That's why I like it. No one can see me. Um, But I think my attitudes have changed. Like if we're joking around, like thinking of like cinema as a religion, Mm. I don't think you need to go to church to worship. I think you can worship and pray at home just as well. And I think there's a lot of people that are still a little bit trepidatious to go to the cinema. So I think with some of the roundup of what we've got here today, I want to like make sure there's something for everyone as well if they're not ready to go to the cinemas yet. A lot of these films have come to VOD now or are much more accessible to every person. Let's get into it. So we've got this list of, I asked you to send through about seven or eight of your favourite movies of the year. There was- And it was the <laughs> hardest task I've had all year. And then you've <laughs> added one in last minute. I got an email from you just a few <laughs> minutes ago saying, I have to talk about this movie. We're going to get to it. Um, yeah. The good news, well, I think a good good news in both ways that there's quite a few movies that overlapped with my favourites of the year and then quite a few that I haven't had the chance to see yet, but I'm very excited to see uh, that, that you wanted to shout out as well. So it's going to be- I think a really fun time talking about why we love these movies. And then at the end of that, there's about eight movies we're going 
going to chat about. You've got some special categories as well, which I appreciate <laughs> the effort you went to for that. Thank you very much. Well, it's a way for me to squeeze in a half dozen extra movies <laughs> for you. It's very hard to whittle them down. <laughs> Look, I think people love a long movie chat. Like, let's let's take our time with this one. It's it's summer. People can be listening to this on road trips yes. up and down the coast. Like, let's give them some quality Gosh. content. Gosh. I hope there are some absolute honks and babes listening to this on the beach, just feeling the, the the beautiful waves and currents tickle their toes as we scintillate their minds. I do. People take their Yui booms to the beach to listen to the culture. I've, I've heard that from many, many people, you know. Let's get into it. The first movie, this is a shared one. This is one of my favourite movies of the year, and I was really excited to see it on your list as well. It's David Lowry's The Green Knight, starring Dev Patel, a kind of retelling of uh, Sir Gawain and The Green Knight, the, the Arthurian Camelot legend. Oh, greatest of kings, indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. Let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth. Take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me. Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? I saw the trailer for this movie. It's classic kind of A24. We, I don't know what's going on. It's kind of grim and strange, yeah. but I'm so in and Dev looks so good. And the movie yeah. was also very strange and not quite... You know, you sort of have it pitched as like a fantasy epic. And this is like much less like something like Game of Thrones and and much more very like singular and meditative and contemplative and Mm -hmm. very serious and moody. And I think that's maybe why I liked it. It kind of just felt very different to the movie I was expecting or, or what I kind of expect from medieval fantasy movies. But and I also just an enormous fan of Dev Patel. And like I said before, yeah. he looked fantastic. Tell me about why you loved The Green Knight. I was so excited when this was one of our consensus picks because, like you said, this is a really strange, weird little movie. And I think that this might be personally my actual favorite film of the year wow. because. Wow. I really love medieval fantasy. It is something I never talk about. I don't think I've ever really talked about on a podcast, but I really, really love medieval fantasy. I grew up loving like Arturian legends, reading these little weird, strange little Arturian books. And I remember this one of Sir Garwin and the Green Knight growing up and remembering it was kind of like a Christmassy thing. And David Lowry is a filmmaker I really, really admire. I think he does really fantastic and interesting work. He never does anything that just feels like a straight up genre piece. They always feel like an evolution in an intimate way of genre. Like even the Disney live action remake Mm. he did was Pete's Dragon. (laughs) That is like art house E.T. Like (laughs) I don't know what that movie is. But the first movie I saw of him was Ain't Them Body Saints, which kind of felt like a take on a gangster western. So that was a key movie for me. So I've always followed his career quite closely. And seeing him moving into this fantasy realm with like a classic fantasy tale with one of my guys who's been one of my guys since I was in high school, Dev Patel. Absolutely, to me, an iconic actor and seeing his career blossom in this way and them kind of merging together to create something so weird and interesting that feels like an epic in the most intimate sense where there is a journey, there is like a coming of age element to this as well because we begin with Dev Patel as Sir Garwin as like this brash kind of cocky guy and his development changes over time to like be so... I don't even know where his journey leads him really because it's like a, a beautiful, ambiguous fantasy movie. And I think what really draws me into this is that it feels like it's an adaptation of not just like paying homage to like John Borman's Excalibur and like the great Arturian films. It feels like an adaptation of every iteration of these adaptations. And I think one thing that does it so well in a stylistic sense is the titles of this movie, like these title cards. There's these beautiful fonts that feel like every editions of Dungeons and Dragons, really, like paying homage to like what fantasy and mythology means to us in a modern sense as well. I'm, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm a bit surprised there's less, like, Oscar buzz about this movie. I would have thought, like, Larry is director, like, it is such an interestingly yeah. and beautifully directed film. But maybe there's just way too much out and it's kind of gotten lost 
in all of that? How do you mm. feel about the lack of awards buzz? I think you're right. I think that because there are so many other films that hit like the usual notes that the awards really try to gather up, you know, I think Lord of the Rings is a very rare example of fantasy breaking through in such an undeniably big way where it has to garner awards uh, attention. I think there's very few rare, especially in like this high or medieval fantasy realm that really breaks through and gets that awards uh, attention. But I would also say, like we've been saying, it's an extremely strange movie. <laughs> yeah. Like this is yeah. really not for everyone, but uh, it's really, really worth your time, I think. Awesome. The Green Knight, go check it out. Next up on the list, one of your favourites. I haven't had the chance to see this movie yet, but it was another one of those movies where as soon as the trailer dropped, I'm like, all right, here we go. Nicolas Cage, yeah. his pig gets stolen and he's very mad. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone stole her. I don't understand. Tell me you are. Pig. Talk to me about pig. Who has my pig? This was a huge surprise to me. I loved this movie. This is a directorial debut of a filmmaker called Michael Sarnowski, and it stars one of the all-timers, Mr. Nicolas Cage, the Hollywood's most eccentric actor. And he plays this reclusive chef uh, or retired chef who now lives out in the woods. He has some kind of dark past in his backstory, and his only real true friend is his truffle pig that he goes out finding truffles with that he sells to uh, buy and restaurateurs and stuff. And his pig gets kidnapped by people that want to exploit this pig's beautiful talent (laughs) of finding the most gorgeous little treats out there in the forest. And I think what really entices me about this movie is I do love food movies. I love the deliciousness of a food movie because I think what draws me to those more than any kind of the most sub of subgenres is that food is the most visually and orally, all the senses come together mm. with food as far as artistic expression goes. And I think film is a really great way to translate that to another art form because you can see everything being made, you can see the process of it, and you can kind of, through like the crackling of like sound, you can really be immersed in the experience and the expression of what food is and, you know, everybody eats. But what really hit me about this is it really toys with your expectations of that largely old man action subgenre of vigilantism in movies all the way back to like Death Wish mm-hmm. to The Equalizer with Denzel and basically one half of Liam Neeson's career like all of those <laughs> old man action movies it like plays with that and we're so used to like seeing Nicolas Cage in those kind of roles as well and to see this become an internalized journey and it doesn't really delve into like the violence of those movies it's really a fascinating beast this film and we're so used to seeing Nicolas Cage be the most exciting example of externalizing feelings through emotional expressionism and that's what we love him Mm. for that's why he's like deified in uh you know film circles and meme circles alike but here it's all subtle it feels even more powerful because it's all brewing and it's this all-encompassing sadness that weighs him down and it's internalized with like so much nuance that I was really taken aback by this film that's interesting to hear because when you were describing the premise and when I saw the trailer and read some reviews about it I'm like this sounds like the first act from John Wick yeah this guy who's got a dark past he's kind of lonely he's got this dog in the case of John Wick, when his dog goes missing, mm. he ends up killing like many hundreds of Russian people across the city of New yeah. York. <laughs> but it sounds like this takes a slightly different direction. Yeah, it really does. It becomes about like emotional connection. And it's got a great supporting performance from Alex Wolf, who we know from Hereditary, who I think is kind of in the same pocket as Nicolas Cage of being a really emotionally expressionistic, externalized actor. Um, he could be like the heir to that mantle that, you know, has no heirs currently. And I think what really drives at home is that it is kind of... It's a movie that softness reveals itself through harshness. And I really was 
completely floored by this movie and I did not... It kind of played with my expectations at every moment. And that's kind of set in like this weird underworld of uh, the Pacific Northwest, like gourmet fine dining food scene is... It's kind of like John Wick meets like Burnt or Chef in a really good way. It's so strange. You famously love Burnt, don't you? Oh, it's one of my least favorites. <laughs> but I do love Chef. I do love Chef. I can't wait. This movie's on my summer watch list. I'm very excited to see it. The next movie, one of my faves of the year, also features a kind of, I guess, a bit of a comeback from a big actor from the 90s. Uh, this movie is Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. Soderbergh is one of my guys. So he yeah. he could make anything and I would love it. And he's on such a streak right now. This guy's like making two feature mm. films a year. He is on another level. And he continually experiments. He's completely prolific. And in every aspect of his prolific career, he's always experimenting. Yeah, like the run-up to this. So he in 2019, he made two movies for Netflix, The, the Laundromat and High Flying Bird. And The Laundromat got a lot of the buzz, uh, High Flying Bird much less. It was this really fascinating movie uh, in the same sort of vein as Uncut Gems, like following this guy around yeah. for a couple of days as he tries to resolve a crisis. Shot entirely, I think, on an iPhone 7. And it was just Soderbergh flexing. Yeah. And then last year he came out with uh, Let Them All Talk, a movie that he filmed during the day on a cruise liner and then would edit all night. And, and he just Unreal. made it over the course of, like, two weeks. No Sudden Move is, is a, I guess, more of a return to form for him, like sort of similar to his crime capers, you know, the Ocean's mm. franchise and, and, and Out of Sight. It's a crime thriller set in Detroit in the 50s. So what's the score? We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... What do you want? Is that something you'd say? Normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of you. Like you'd expect from Soderbergh, the cast is stacked. You know, Benicio, Del Toro, Don Chittle, and yeah, Brendan Fraser kind of making a really fascinating, dramatic comeback. Kieran Culkin, Succession Hive, Rise, the score from David Holmes, who, you know, scores most of those movies. It's, It's a really fun, interesting movie. It's like, you know, like a lot of my favorite Soderbergh movies, it's not a movie that's I know, dissecting the world or trying to engage with huge, like, political themes, though there is an interesting kind of undercurrent of what impact race politics played in Detroit in the 50s. And I think it is smart for Soderbergh to engage in that the way that he does rather than eh, some of his movies just pretends like this stuff doesn't really exist. I kind of like the way that this feels very naturally kind of inbuilt into the story. And I don't want to give too much away, but in the final act of the movie, there is a cameo from one of the biggest actors in the world. And it's wow. such a strange cameo because it's a cameo, but also it is like one of the most important scenes in the movie that makes it all come together. Can I tell you this? I've never felt more tense and tightened when you said this is not a spoiler and then the ending of the movie was the next <laughs> words you said. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the, the plot details. And also it's so hard to go into sort of plot details because they're oh, so yeah. complicated. But um, yeah, I, I thought this movie was really fun. I think a lot of the movies I watched this year, which and a lot of them that are on our list, they're very serious. Some of them are quite grim and they're beautiful, beautiful movies. This movie is just like, what I love about Soderbergh the most. Very self-aware, very yeah. experimental, and very fun. No sudden move. Go check it out. This is one I'm yet to catch up with because I think it kind of landed in that period for me where I was at my weakest with not enjoying mm. movies after, like, being trapped indoors, where I went through what I call my Beverly Hills Cop phase, where I only watched <laughs> the Beverly Hills Cops movies over a few times. So it's one I'm extremely excited now to catch up with that it's, like, available to stream on VOD and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a movie that it's whether it's a date night or whether you're having some friends over you're gonna have fun with this one we'll be back after a short break
Next couple of movies, Alexi, the, the two of yours that you really wanted to talk about, I've heard a lot about these movies. I think they both could be in contention for the international feature at the Academy Awards. They're very different movies, but they both sound mm. extremely, extremely good. The first one is uh, Drive My Car, a, a movie based on a Murakami short story. All the critics I trust and love, and you're on that list, have put this as wow, one of their so favorite much. movies of the year. Talk to me about Drive My Car. Drive My Car is a Japanese film by a filmmaker I was not familiar with before called Ryosuke Hamaguchi. And this is, like you said, an adaptation of a Murakami novel or Murakami short story. And it is one of the most unique experiences I've had in a cinema in the last few years, wow. uh, it's a long movie. It's three hours long. And, you know, that's usually a warning sign for me. Like maybe it's not for me because I don't really, uh, you know, I like a short, tight, 87-minute fun ride. I do like a rom. Um, <laughs> but this was something that really emotionally resonated with me on a really, really deep level. This is new filmmaker. He made another film this year as well called uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. And I watched that as soon as I had seen this because this is a new one of my guys. This is go- This guy's going in my state now. So this film, it plays with time and runtime in such a fascinating way where basically the story is about this dramaturgy, this actor who uh, is well known in the world of this film for putting on classical plays, in this case Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. And in this world, what he does is each actor performs the play in their own language. And it's in interesting one of those texts where the text of Uncle Vanya, if you're familiar with it, like plays so intimately with this. And he's been diagnosed with glaucoma, so he's not supposed to be driving, but he has like this beautiful 1990s era red Saab and driving is like a key part of his process as far as acting mm. goes and creating like theatre goes. And he's given a driver to drive him from his hotel to the workshops to set and stuff. And it is very often about the creation of this play and about the drives and his drives with this young driver who's from a different socioeconomic background from him and like the conversations that they have or the lack of conversations that they have. But that is the second two hours of the movie. The first hour is backstory, complete backstory. Like I've never seen in a movie before where the entire first hour is building the backstory for where the premise of the film begins. We don't see opening titles until one hour into (laughs) the film when there has been a cataclysmic life-changing event that is just in another film would be the first minute. And I think that was something that I found so completely bold and something that I really had not seen before. And it just allows you to really be in the world of this character and to experience his life the way he experiences it. Not in real time, but it feels close because it is long. <laughs> but it just feels so deeply and emotionally re- like resonant while it feels so reserved as it unfolds on screen. If anything, feels like a romantic experience without it being a directly romantic film in any kind of way. I can hear the the passion and kind of emotion in your voice. It it really seems to have. I am trembling with yeah, tears. It seems like it really <laughs> struck a chord with you. I'm, I'm even more excited for this one than I was before. This one will get a wider release, I think, in February of next year, so 2022. And I really think that is one worth seeing any way possible. Excellent. Book it in for Feb. I said goodbye to me. I looked in the mirror. Then I began. The next one on the list a film called The Worst Person in the World, a Norwegian rom com. Talk to me about this, Alexi. This is a movie about like turning 30, I guess. <laughs> so it's all of the things you yeah. said. Um, this is a probably, I would say, my hot pick to take out the best foreign language film at the Academy Awards. Um, we don't call it that anymore, Alexi. Like, so we call it International Feature. Oh, sorry. I'm so cancelled. sorry, International Feature. At the Oscars. <laughs> How about if I say that? <laughs> uh, this one really, this one stuck with me. I saw it a couple of weeks ago and I have not been able to stop thinking about it. It is an interesting, weird 
like you said, kind of romantic comedy and more emphasis on the comedy. And it feels like some kind of portrayal of real life of someone who is completely stuck and not really knowing what the trajectory of their destiny will be, like where they will go, what their career should be, what their relationship Very should be. Very relatable content. Sounds like turning 30. Yeah. Absolutely relatable. I, I feel I feel like I'm still stuck in this movie. <laughs> That's probably why I'm still thinking about it. And it has like this fantastic performance at the heart of it all by a Norwegian actor called Renata Reinsfa, who completely embodies every tone of this character in a way that is so entirely joyous and watchable, no matter like how difficult the situations are for the character and how hard it beats her down. It's just joyously watchable, this film, with this like central performance. And the thing that really is enticing about this film is not just like how real it feels, but like the way that it uses surrealism to capture a reality. Maybe my favorite scene or moment of the year is a scene where uh, the rest of the world completely pauses and freezes and she goes on this like run to go meet someone that she has fallen for and has these feelings for. But the rest of time has frozen around her and this other person on the other side of the city. And it's just this complete expulsion of joy. It's a really, really fascinating Would you call it a feel-good film or is it more complicated than that? I would say it's more complicated than that, but it did make me feel good. So technically, yes, it is a feel-good movie. We, we need. I, I just want to like, yeah, like I said before, there's a lot of there's a lot of dark stuff in the list. So I want to give people yeah. a sense of the emotions they can feel if they choose to settle in and watch one of these films. The next one on the list is another double up. Is a movie that I said on my uh, sort of preview films of the summer list that I was very excited about. Jane Campion's first feature film in, in over a decade, I think. 12 years and it like yeah. the log line is all these things that when you chuck together with Jane Campion it's like hook it to my veins a, a gothic western <laughs> it's set in Montana it's shot in the beautiful New Zealand landscape uh, Kirsten Dunst Benedict Cumberbatch this movie lived up to my expectations it exceeded my expectations it was beautiful it was shot by Ari Wagner the DOP is a wonderful Australian DOP who backed up Zola, another really beautifully shot movie, mm. with this. The reaction to this film has been a bit more split than than I was maybe expecting. I think there are some people who say that the movie was too slow, it, you know, it kind of didn't really come together in the end. I don't know about that. Maybe I just kind of like just enjoyed sitting and, and seeing this stuff play out. But I was excited again, like you said, when we both had The Green Adam. I was really excited to see it on your list. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm on the right side here if Alexi also thinks <laughs> this is one of the best movies of the year. Um, talk, talk me through The Power of the Dog. I think that kind of maybe where the split is, is when we talk about films in terms of genre experiences, we do come in with like preconceived notions of what it should be delivering Mm. and what the experience we should be receiving is. And this film is a Western. It is set in like the period of the Western and the generic elements of a Western are simply, it's set in the West. It's usually should be set in an olden days. There should be visual elements of horses, <laughs> hats, boots, and spurs. And this film has all of those. And it is about, to a great extent, man's relationship with the earth and man's relationship with nature, which is one of the key thematic elements of the Western genre. But it is delivered in such a powerfully different way. It feels so entirely Jane Campion. You know, it is like a direct child to her film The Piano, Mm. if anything, Mm. where, you know, it is the ideas of masculinity being unpacked. And I think for me, what really struck me was I don't feel like I've been on the hook for a movie quite like this in some time. As the events of the film and allegiances and relationships and uh, people's plans unfold, 
I was on the hook with each single one and feeling the revelations on screen. And they are subtle revelations. Like this is a slow, subtle movie with like emotional, deep emotional depth where when we have those moments of unfolding, they feel rev- they felt revelatory for me every single time where I really couldn't believe it. And then we've got these four central performances that are all career best mm. work from Cody Smith-McPhee, a great young Australian actor who we know from being a child actor in stuff like The Road and the American remake of Let the Right One In, Let Me In. And it's so fascinating to see him come of age now and be an adult actor and put in a performance just like this that is so sing- this is a performance that could not appear in any other movie and I cannot imagine a single other actor on earth playing something like this it is such a strange interesting internal performance but I think Benedict Cumberbatch this is the most I've ever loved him I totally him. agree I- with you like I not that I've never gotten him. I'm like, yeah, he's fine, but people need to calm down about this guy. But it really feels yeah. like this time around, it's like, oh, okay, it was all worth it for this for this performance. Uh, I read somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, but um, that just completely unlocked what this film does with his character is that he is cast almost against type because we know him as being, we know him as Sherlock, a bookish character, book smarts, not street smarts. And in this film, he plays like a rugged Western outdoorsman who doesn't shower. He wipes his whole body down in mud. And that is kind of antithetical to how we see him as his movie star persona. But I think that is the brilliance of what is in casting him here because this feels like a man who is forcing a persona onto himself and it is like forcing this outdoorsy, rugged character onto somebody who is bookish and is like a scholarly man. And I think that is like a next level casting Mm. experience Mm. where as the movie goes on, you understand why it's Benedict Cumberbatch in this role instead of a Josh Brolin or someone who does feel like that, like epitome of masculinity. I think it is sublime next level casting. Hearing you talk about the maybe mismatched expectations is interesting. I think that might be right. Like you sort of went through all the ways that this movie has the, the genre tropes of a Western, but then it doesn't have, you know, the kind of, shootouts and and stuff that I think people expect. And Mm. it's slower, I think, than like a lot of other Westerns. And it reminds me, not that the movie itself reminds me of There Will Be Blood, but there's that funny Mm. line from The Thick of It, one of my favourite TV shows of all time, (laughs) where one of the characters says, you know, that movie, that was like hardly any blood in that movie, really. And I think that was another movie because of the title and because of this that people thought this is going to be an intense, bloody, violent, you know, movie set in this beautiful landscape. And I think there may be some people who watched the trailer or read a little bit about this and thought, all right, here we go, Cowboys in the West, let's mm. rock and roll. And it's not that. And and that might explain why I think there is a little bit of – I mean, it, the movie's by and large doing very well, and I think there's a lot yeah. of buzz this one for Jane Campion perhaps to, to get an Oscar nod. Yeah. But less, I guess, universal praise, like I said, than I was expecting. Yeah. It really is a movie about performances and like how uh, the relationships form and how people defy each other. And Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons also career best work. Kirsten Dunst, I hope she wins a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Or if they do some category fraud, put her in the lead. Either way, (laughs) she deserves a big award for it. The next movie on the list, the final movie on our list, one that I'm deeply, deeply jealous that you have seen Mm. that I have not had an opportunity to watch yet is maybe one of my most anticipated movies of the year. It is Licorice Pizza. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no You watched it last night and you... You emailed me straight away and you said, Oz, I've got to talk about this movie. Can we do a whole podcast about this movie? What are you doing? I need two hours to offload about Licorice Pizza. Yeah. 
Tell me about why you connected with it so much yesterday when you watched it. This was a great, great experience. This was a beautiful time to sit down and point your eyes to one of the most powerful and illuminating rectangles that you could ever do. <laughs> and that's why I love the movies, baby. It really, it, it actually is a movie that reinvigorated my love for cinema that also probably didn't even need reinvigorating. It's just one of those films that you just go, oh, freaking hell, I just absolutely love movies. It is a coming-of-age film, a teen film, and teen films always mean a lot to me. Like, when there is an expert filmmaker going into that, like, beloved genre, the most relatable genre of all films, because everyone has had the shared experience of being a teenager. And so I always find an emotional depth to these movies that uh, I find completely intoxicating. To see one of the great masters, Paul Thomas Anderson, from There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, come to this genre, I was deeply anticipating this film and apprehensive because I'm like, I'm worried about it. What if it doesn't hit? But it is a chronicle of California in this time of a young man who is basically a child actor who forms a relationship with an older young woman. It's played by Cooper Hoffman, who is the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, and the older girl is played by Alana Haim. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, regular... Um, collaborator with Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. in the past. That is something that's extracurricular. It's <laughs> interesting. We're like, that is so We cool. love context. We but love context. <laughs> <laughs> we love that kind of context. But it's a chronicle of California in the 70s of like what's going on and what I really, really loved about this movie and why I think it's a great teen movie is that what I feel like this movie really is about is an idea of performance, how you construct your personality when you're a teenager or when you're a young person and how you want that persona to be received by others and how you play yourself to others and how you play yourself to different people in different ways. I think that's such a key element to like- (laughs) That's what I dream to be, a (laughs) psychoanalyst of movies. Instead, I'm just a psycho, but- um, Uh, But that idea of like performance and developing one's persona. And I feel like every single scene and every single character in that movie plays on that thesis, like how we present ourselves. This is like kind of almost a movie about a young hustler. The uh, Cooper Hoffman character feels like a guy who is slowly finding himself to become a con man of some kind or a huckster of some kind. And those are my types of guys. Those are the people that I'm drawn to (laughs) and fascinated by. They're people I dedicate like, you know, hours of research and podcasts (laughs) to. And I I think that this is a really, really special translation of that idea to the screen uh, in a way that feels deeply relatable and powerfully emotive where it feels like those reminiscences of the past where you look back and you maybe like you look back at one summer in your life and you go, oh man, that was a great night. But in reality, that was like 14 nights. It's not just one experience, but this movie kind of captures that mm. feeling. Who's in the best of the show? Is there life on And then there are so many amazing little cameos and characters that pop into this world. And chief among them is Bradley Cooper playing a real-life character in Hollywood, John Peters, who was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, then became Barbara Streisand's boyfriend, and then became a legendary super producer who is probably most famous for Kevin Smith. Uh, who was adapting Superman at the time, who uh, John Peters had the rights to it and demanded that he put in a giant mechanical spider into the movie. (laughs) And then eventually a movie that he produced, Wild Wild West, had that mechanical spider in it. So that mechanical Um, spider from Wild Wild West was originally going to be in a Kevin Smith Superman movie. I think it would have been in any movie John Peters (laughs) wanted it to be in. He just had a dream of putting a mechanical spider in a movie and he would not care what vehicle it was in. But, we should do a uh, Wild Bradley Wild Cooper pl- podcast. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea, but I mean, I'll I'll do it with you. Right. <laughs> back back to licorice pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but Bradley Cooper's performance as this character is one of those like he's only in a few scenes, but it is just an absolute rip through the entire film, and just unlocks the idea of like what these hucksters are and how people want to present themselves because he 
is a guy draped in like all white linen clothing who's saying that he's from the streets and he understands street logic. And it's a fascinating performance in really what might be one of the very, 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 very best movies of the year and the last few years, perhaps. Extraordinary praise. I also think it's such an interesting move and it sounds like it paid off to to star these unknown actors, you know, Cooper mm-hmm. Hoffman and Alana Haim. But you can see a movie like this, I don't know, Timothy Chalamet and Jennifer Lawrence or something like that. And I yeah. just feel like there's so much baggage or expectation with that and they're so earnest in telling a coming-of-age story and capturing that loss of innocence by casting kind of real-life innocence seems like such a smart move. Yeah, it really is, and it really pays off where you feel invested in these people as characters rather than, like, any kind of persona. Oh, yeah, like I said, I cannot wait. That's our list. Let's 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 run through it before we get to your special categories. we got Licorice Pizza, Power of the Dog, Worst Person in the World, Drive My Car, No Sudden Move, Pig, and The Green. That's a good list. It's a great list. Yeah. It's been a great year. Like I think as well some great consensus picks and so many outside-the-box categories as well. I'm really proud of us, Alexi. Oh, gosh. I felt that praise. <laughs> the light glue upon me in that moment. Uh, to wrap up the episode, you've picked another few movies in, in some special categories. I'm really excited you have because I feel like these are the kinds of movies that could get missed when we're trying to pick the very, very, very best movies of the year. We've done that, I think, and I'm really happy with how we've done it, but there are so many other things that are worth talking about. Mm. So let's whip through these. I love the categories you've chosen. The first (laughs) one is the best movie that you've seen nobody talk about. What have you picked for this one? This is a real hidden gem for me. I love this movie. It's called Boiling Point, and it is a one-shot, one-take film that is a thriller set in the kitchen and restaurant of a fine dining restaurant on its busy night of the year. We've got a good menu. We pull together, we'll be fine. Yes, yes. We can get beef anywhere. I'll, I'll have it sorted by tonight. Let's move our And it stars Stephen Graham, who is one of those great modern gangster actors. He played Al Capone on Boardwalk Empire. He's been in like heaps of Guy Ritchie movies and is in The Irishman as well. He plays this chef in this movie and it's all set in like his anxiety of everything kind of crashing together. And he's just a perfect actor. I mean, he looks like he's got a face like a clenched fist and it just works so well in this movie. And it felt like such a no-brainer to have a restaurant movie be in this one-take, one-shot, high-anxiety model. And I've seen nobody talk about it at all. I caught it by chance at the British Film Festival that plays all around Australia. And I had no idea. I don't even know how I found it because I wasn't looking there. I've got no idea how I ended up in the cinema. And I'm very glad I did, but I've heard nobody really talk about it. So it's one I think to keep on your radar. It's such a small micro-budget movie where the biggest star is Stephen Graham, who I had to explain who he was. Uh, So I think people keep it on your radar. If you like food movies, if you like English movies, if you like great English character actors, and if you like a high-anxiety experience like no other, I've got no idea when it will come out anywhere. So keep it in your back pocket, keep it in the back of your mind. I had not heard about it and I'm glad that you put it on your list because as you said and as I know, you love food movies. We've done a podcast about one of the best ones of all time, Big Night. Big Night. Fantastic movie. We love that movie. And yeah, you're right. It's like, why is it taking this long for someone to be like a busy night in a fine dining restaurant? Let's just do it. I'm I can sort of see it when I close my eyes. I can see those onions being sliced, the pressure, the stress, the (laughs) Yeah, I love it. All right, Boiling Point, let's do it. Uh, Your best COVID movie, which I imagine is a movie filmed during COVID and how that all worked. Tell me about this one. This is a movie called Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, and it won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival this year. (laughs) It is a Romanian black comedy about a female teacher who has a sex tape leak online and has to explain it at a parent-teacher meeting and, like, justify it. And it is one of the most unique movies I've seen 
in my entire life, really, because it's told in three parts and or four parts, really. The first part is complete full-on penetrative sex <laughs> shot in a sex tape style, which is like, you know, it's a jarring experience to see that in a film. And then the next part is her walking around the city on the phone as we explore Romania in the grips of coronavirus where everybody's wearing masks. You get glimpses of conversations as she walks through uh, supermarkets and pharmacies and all these different types of stores, people on the street, like the kind of interactions people are having where there are people doubting the vaccines, doubting Mm. coronavirus, thinking Mm. masks are BS. And like all those conversations we're so used to having, but it was a tremendous oral experience of like having that up on the big screen where it feels like you're really there. Use a surround sound in a really interesting way. The next part is a glossary of terms where it goes through like histories of uh, terminology and how they relate to Romania from everything to war, to blowjob, to the Holocaust. And it's told in like a funny and strange and deeply resonating way. And finally is the parent-teacher interview where it is almost a play at this point where she is fighting back with all these teachers from different aspects of Romania, oh, with all these parents of from different aspects of Romanian society and culture. I've never seen anything like this film. And I really do think it is probably the great piece of COVID art. That's really good to hear because I feel like there's so much COVID art that I have no desire to watch, or I'm like, mm. let's consign that to the dustbin of history. Uh, yeah. But this one sounds actually very interesting and very funny. It's very funny, very strange. It's bad luck banging or loony porn. And you might be able to catch it in cinemas as this podcast is out. It's still little traces of it out there in the world. Just like COVID. (laughs) 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 I'm losing it. It's the end of the year, folks. All right. It's been a big year. We're allowed to to have some fun. (laughs) (laughs) Let us let loose for a minute, guys. Uh, Best animated movie. Mitchell's vs. Machines. Why did you love this? Do you love animated films? Uh, I do like animated films, but this one was really, really fascinating. Let it begin. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? Or is it? Ah! Who are these unstoppable warriors? We're the Mitchells, the only people who can save the world. I'm super sorry, everyone. It is completely gorgeous. It's got a completely unique aesthetic design to it that kind of matches modern day CG animation with some kind of interspersed 2D animation. It is a multi-textured, multi-media film for the entire family. It's basically a a family road trip movie during a robo apocalypse um, with a great sense of humor. And what really struck me about this movie, I remember having to review... Into the Spider-Verse, the Spider-Man movie for the mix when it came out. Great film. And I love that movie. And when I saw it, I declared that it was the next greatest leap forward in American animation since Toy Story. And I still truly deeply believe that. But I think The Mitchells and Machines is kind of what is beyond that Mm, next step. The next iteration. What is, yeah, where we are now that we've taken that leap forward. And it's this hybridization of expressive cartoon characters and 3D animation that just feels so beautifully drawn in a way that I've not seen before. And it's still quite emotionally tender. This was the first film that I saw was like, this is my first favorite movie of the year. And it stuck with me this whole 10, 12 months since I saw it. I'm probably going to watch it again before the year's done. It's just up there on Netflix now, and it is a fantastic animated film for the whole family. The last movie we're going to talk about, the last movie we're going to talk about this year, is your best Australian film. Yeah, this is one that you guys did a great episode on here on A Culture that I think deserves praise when we're talking about the end-of-year wrap-up because uh, Nitram by Justin Curzel was a film that I was I the opposite of looking forward to. Mm, I mm. do not... Uh, Snowtown, the previous film that is in this bleak world by this filmmaker, 
is a film that I had a visceral reaction in a completely negative way to. I would say it's one of the worst times I've ever had sitting down in my life. And um, not just in the movies. I could have been sitting down anywhere (laughs) receiving any kind of news. One of the worst times I've ever had, but it's very effectively made and that is a compliment to the filmmaker. And I really did not think that this was a story that I wanted to see on the big screen and it was kind of a story about the Port Arthur Massacre that I'm like, how can you wake up every morning and this is the story you Mm. want to tell? It's so hard to make a movie and this is what you want to make. And I did think I had to see it because I felt so strongly about it. And it really, really blew me away. I think that it is a really fantastic, engaging, completely unique Australian film that deals with so much of our fascination in this country as far as our culture and art goes in a fascination with the idea of male psychopaths. And I think it unpacks it in a way that I find closer to a conversation that needed to be had about it than I ever could have expected. When he was a little boy, we used to play a game at the fabric shop in town. He'd go off and hide in all the big, tall rolls of fabric, and then I'd try and find him. He loved it. I loved it. But then this one day, I went to find him, and he wasn't there. He lived everywhere. Not in the silks, not in the cottons. Ran into all the shops, strangers were stopping to help me. Tears streaming down my face. What did you do? I gave up and went back to the car. I looked around, and there he was. Lying on the floor of the back seat, looking up at me, laughing. Laughing at my pain. Laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world. I was also apprehensive going to this movie for the same reason and thinking out of all the stories someone could tell and someone in Cosell's position who's gone on to make big budget Hollywood movies, is it really this one? But I think he, yeah, like we did a a chat about it with myself and Mahmoud Fazal, did a chat about this film. You can find it in the culture feed uh, if you want to know more about Nitram and our thoughts on it. Alexi, what a year. And we started this by saying how much we love movies. How freaking great are movies? They're some of the best things you can watch, I would say. (laughs) Up there with the greats. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending this time talking about what you loved. I'm really looking forward to talking to you more on this show next year. And you've given me and hopefully the listeners a bunch of great recommendations to check out over the summer break. I love to think of myself as a cinema sommelier (laughs) where I can find the perfect drink for your eyes out there in the world. I cannot wait to be, have my thirst slated by your sommeliering. (laughs) Take care, my friend. You too, my dear mate. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at theculture.pod. I'm Osman Faruqi, and hope you're enjoying the summer. 